Welcome to Visionaries. I'm your host, Jacob Wolf, a former ESPN award-winning investigative journalist and the CEO and founder of Overcome. Today, we are joined by Jason Concepcion. Jason is one of the most high-profile commentators on all things nerd culture. He is the current host of X-Ray Vision, a crooked media podcast where he breaks down sci-fi, fantasy, and all sorts of other nerd entertainment. He also co-hosts the official Game of Thrones podcast during the House of the Dragon series. And he is a former co-host of Binge Mode, one of the most popular nerd culture podcasts ever. And on that series, him and co-host Mallory Rubin broke down some of the most popular titles in all of nerd entertainment, be it the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Game of Thrones, or Star Wars. Jason has become world-renowned for his thoughtful analysis on everything around us in entertainment. And so we wanted to have him on for what is a very special moment right now for video game entertainment. If you haven't been keeping up the past couple of weeks, we've been talking a little bit about The Last of Us, the new series on HBO. It is the adaptation of the 2013 game that came out on PlayStation 3. And it is phenomenal. Many people have said that it has broken the video game adaptation curse and finally brought video games to television in a meaningful way. So who better to have on to talk about that than the nerd who's covered all of this himself? Jason Concepcion, welcome to Visionaries. Jason, we're, how, are, how are you doing? Uh, what's, what's going on in your world? I'm doing well. I am uh, I'm eagerly consuming The Last of Us, you know, hanging out, doing podcasts, doing my podcast X-Ray Vision twice a week now with co-host Rosie Knight and just, just grinding, just grinding away. Yeah, I was going to ask you, I haven't heard X-Ray Vision for Last of Us episode mm -hmm. two. Uh, what's what's the if you had to spoil your own podcast a little bit <laughs> for us, what's your take? It continues to be great, much like House of the Dragon, the changes you know, at least in our opinion, have been really additive and really smart. And the stuff that they've kept the same, they've, you know, subverted a little bit to keep the people who, you know, are, are well-versed with the story through the game surprised. And I just think it's great. The casting is like off the charts. I love the the background info we're getting about how the plague started, information yep. about Fedra, about the fireflies. It's just great. It's just wonderful, and the performances again are just off the charts. Good. Yeah, the I I won't spoil it in, entirely if people haven't seen the second episode of The Last of Us, but I will say the the prologue of the every single episode tends has has been the best part in my opinion. Yeah. Prologue of, of episode one, which is the recreation in the beginning of the game, excellent, and then the same here the uh, that scene as well. So or that entire sequence. So I'm I'm genuinely impressed. But a big part of this conversation and why we wanted to have this conversation is that and I've struggled to kind of put my my like finger on what to call it. But I know, Jason, you've been at sort of the forefront of this. It feels like, you know, we have some reporting now that how big The Last of Us has been, which mm -hmm. is more than 18 million people have watched the first episode in the past like eight or nine days on HBO Max is the second biggest premiere on HBO behind only House of the Dragon, right? Which is a Game of Thrones IP. It makes sense why uh, House of the Dragon was so successful in, in the past 13 years on any HBO platform. And I think that 
something that I've sort of noticed anecdotally, especially the past like four or five years and probably Thrones being a bigger part of this is like the nerds have taken over television, which is like awesome. I mean, it's not that sci-fi and fantasy weren't big before, mm-hmm. but now it feels like every smash hit, every smash hit television series is fantasy or sci-fi, you know, whether it be the Mandalorian, whether it be Thrones, whether it be the last of us. And it's like, all of this like nerd culture. I mean, what what are your thoughts, Jason? Like, what are what do you think started this, and why do you think we're here at this very? Gosh, why uh, did this happen? Moment? I think it happened. I think there's a suite of factors working all together. I think one, the technology got to the point where you can make this stuff look really good on television. I think second of all, you know, Game of Thrones in particular kind of proved that fantasy could really make hay with a television audience in a huge way, in an international way, which kind of opened the floodgates. In terms of, you know, comic book movies, the same thing, the tech got there. And by the time the tech got there, you had, you know, 50 years, 60 years of comic book stories kind of like waiting in the vault to be adapted, just waiting to, to find an audience. And now all that stuff is is coming out and maybe with the last of us now you're seeing the same thing happen with video games you know fallout is currently in production over in new york i'm eager to see what uh, what a fallout video game television adaptation might be like but it feels like it, it feels like you know the year 2005 for the video game to television and movies space right now you know obviously there's been some good some really, really fun, like animated adaptations, Arcane, uh, Castlevania. Arcane's but The Last of Us really feels like it, it, it's kind of like blowing the cork out of the live action adaptations that you can really do this well if you have the right property with a good story existing and you have people who, one, understand the story and two, understand how to change it for television. So it works. Yeah. I, I find this very fascinating, both as reporter and CEO of a production company where we're, you know, most of our work is unscripted, but on the scripted side, paying attention to everything, it's not, you know, Bioshock now has a greenlit series. Yep. Duke Nukem has a greenlit, right? Like there's so, <laughs> it's just like you go down the list of like rich video game IPs and it's just, there's so many of them, right? Yeah. And some of them, but I think in, in the past, we've generally thought about, I mean, they've been abject failures. Like the, the doom movie is something sure. that comes immediately to, to mind. And it's like, I kind of like, yeah, right. Same. <laughs> I it's, weirdly like kind of liked it. Pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not good. Like, no, it's not like good. objectively, it's not good. It's like fun, but it's not good. And I think that, you know, now we've gotten to a point where video games are getting, they're getting full love as storytelling, right? Like, I think we all started to understand with time with the technology uh, especially in the like some in the the xbox ps2 generation but certainly in the xbox 360 ps3 generation which is where mm-hmm. like the last of us and a bunch of these other ips come from is that it got to a point where games could be that immersive and so mm-hmm. therefore the storytelling in video games could be deep which lends themselves to other entertainment properties too i you know that's an interesting conversation because on x-ray vision we've been reflecting on the fact that you know, listen, your mileage may vary, but The Last of Us to me is just barely a video game. You know what I mean? Like it's uh, when you think about a video game, you think about interactivity, the ability to make choices, almost any choice you want. And, you know, Naughty Dog has kind of 
specialized in these very streamlined, almost on rail stories where the interactivity is yeah. the action. Like you can, you know, if you're playing Uncharted, you can climb up a cliff in maybe two or three different ways and take out the bad guys in, you know, several different ways. The same thing with The Last of Us. You can sneak around, you can make a lot of noise. Those are the choices you can make, but the rest of it, you know, like pound square to get the infected off of you. It's not really a, uh, you can't choose your own adventure in the same way that you can in other video games, you know, kill NPCs, et cetera, kind of like do game breaking stuff to kind of like derail the story. You can't do that. And I think that is part of why The Last of Us works so well, because it is a streamlined story where you can't just, you know, follow some NPC into some bizarre side quest and then do all kinds of strange things. The lore is very grounded. It's part of part of what makes it so easy to adapt. Not easy, but uh, adaptable, I should say. It does make me worried, though, because it, you know, I think Arcane was a very specific touch point at the end of 2020 because it or end of. Yeah. No, no, no. End of 2021. Sorry, all my years blend together the past three. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Ar Arcane, Arcane is like what it did extremely well. And actually, if you compare it to Riot's other scripted property, which was uh, Players, which is a you know, live action mockumentary yeah. series that came out last summer. They couldn't be more different. Like Arcane they could was, not be more different. Yeah. Arcane was if you didn't know anything about League of Legends, you could watch it and get into it. And the amount of people that I saw especially in like yours and i's social circle of like you know sort of geek culture podcast hosts etc that were talking about it and had never even touched league that yeah. was a good sign that was like oh my god like this universe is now more accessible than ever versus you know looking at looking at players like players extremely inaccessible if you didn't know league <laughs> esports it was I, it was tough so if you didn't know esports yeah. you might think it was a documentary in fact i think you would think it was a documentary if you had no yeah. idea like where the property came from, what it was, I really I kind of liked the swing, even though it mostly didn't work for me. But I like that they took that took that chance. Yeah, but my point being broadly, it makes me worried with kind of all of these television executives and, and film executives buying up so much gaming property that like it's almost going to make this like vicious cycle where like a, a certain amount of them are bound to fail. But will the majority mm -hmm. succeed or majority fail? And like, how will that hurt? kind of the bubble that we've been in which is like gaming doesn't make good television gaming doesn't make good movies and like yeah we're on an upswing of that right now where like okay a couple properties arcane last of us etc are breaking out and being successful and making the stories more accessible but like if we have a bunch of other things that get greenlit that are actually shit then <laughs> we're in a different position you know what i mean like we're in a position where people go back to saying like oh video games doesn't make good tv sure i mean well i think it's it's maybe worth while kind of like trying to figure out why it doesn't work. I think Arcane and Castlevania, because they are animated, allow the filmmakers to delve into the lore in a really immersive and fully committed way that doesn't feel like they cheaped out. You know, like the Assassin's Creed movie, for instance. And, it, you know, for those familiar with the Assassin's Creed game, I defy anyone to explain the lore of the Assassin's Creed world in like less than 30s. It's in, it's freaking insane. And they really tried to like bring that <laughs> uh, yep. to the screen. And honestly, that just requires like an hour of expo dump, like to get you even to a place where you feel like, okay, I kind of understand what's going on. And, you know, that's just so expensive. Like I think about something like yep. Halo that really kind oh, of God. was was pretty good 
or the live action television space, but there were definitely times where you're like, okay, I can see that that background is like cardboard that's painted and it just takes you out of it. You have to, with animated, you can go all the way and just do everything that's necessary to bring that actual video game world to life. When you go live action, you've got to pick your shots because budgets are not going to be unlimited. You're not going to be able to show, you know, uh, everything. This is why the Fallout show is going to be really interesting because, man, that is that requires incredible effects for you to buy it. Yeah. And that's what's so hard about, that's part of what's so hard about live action is, uh, is making the choice about what part of the world can be realistically adapted to, to a live action kind of presentation. And I think part of the thing that's kind of like held video game adaptations back in the past is that these, the game companies, the publisher, whoever owns the IP has been so protective of the product. And, and we, I get it rightfully so that, they just haven't in the past made good choices about what thing to leave out and what thing to bring over to the, the adaptation. Fair. Yeah. I think that it's, that's right. Like if it, especially in, in those open world games, contrasting to what you were saying earlier with last of us being like a very narrow, like this is the path. The story ends the same way, no matter what outcome, when you start playing in the like open world RPG sandbox, it's like, all right, like you have you have too much material to deal with, right? Like prioritizing the material is really hard. Yeah, I guess like for Fallout, you could just uh, you could just make season one like the main story, the the sole survivor looking for his son. Spoiler for those who haven't played Fallout Four, you know, and trying to figure out what happened there, who kidnapped his son, uh, when it happened, who murdered his wife, etc. I guess you could make that the season one. You know, anybody who's played that game will tell you that the story is so much more than that in the relationship between the sole survivor, depending on you know, your mileage may vary, and the various NPCs in the game. How do you how do you trim that down and make that a coherent story? It's going to be really interesting to see the choices. So, you know, one thing that is really interesting to me is I think that these IPs and some of the others are being viewed as like sort of the way through break through the streaming wars, right? Like we've ended up in a place now where I think there's too much streaming content. Like, it's just too much for any one person to digest. Decide You have, like, infinite amount of choices of, like, what am I, which one am I going to open up app-wise and what am I going to choose in this app if you're a normal end consumer? And I think that video games, sort of nerd culture, sci-fi, comic books, you know, uh, kind of down the list, Star Wars has, like, always been a, an IP that breaks through the noise. But, mm -hmm. you know, all, all these various things, the reason that, like, Disney and Netflix and HBO, et cetera, are like doubling down on these IPs is because they see it as a way to break through kind of the mundane nature of a lot of these streaming platforms. But I'm, I'm fearful of a world where we have too much of that, right? Like where there's too much of similar IPs to one another and they, they become the mundaneness, right? That is, sure. that is on the streaming platform, basically. I, I get that concern. I also feel like, yeah, it's the same as it ever was, you know, like the, the Western ruled cinemas and television for, you know, if you want to go back to the early days of pulp literature, you know, it was the Western for like 80 years, you know, and it was yeah. like Westerns, Westerns, Western, Westerns. Go back to television of 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago, and it's cop procedural, law drama, medical drama. 
various yep. sitcoms revolving around the family, all always revolving around the family. Yes, you had different workplace things, but it was like, you know, WKRP in Cincinnati, the office. Yes, but that was like workplace as the family. So I am less concerned about that because we've always been like watching shit that's the same, that's very similar to all the other stuff that's out there. And, and secondarily, like, while we are opining about what works, what doesn't work, what may work in the future, nobody actually knows. <laughs> nobody yeah, actually okay. knows what's going to be the thing. Uh, you know, a question I get asked a lot, a conversation I have a lot, especially in the post Game of Thrones world is like, oh, monoculture, will there ever be the thing? Will there ever be the show that unites us again as one mass audience around the, the, uh, the virtual water cooler? Yeah, somebody will figure it out. I don't know what it is, but at, at some point, somebody will figure that out. But if people could easily figure out how stuff worked, how creative stuff worked, what's going to be a hit, then people would do that. But we can't do it, which makes it kind of yeah. fun. Well, you look at like Netflix second big, biggest show this past year is Wednesday. And I just like right. by at least by like raw viewership. And I'm just like, Where'd that come from? Me, yeah. yeah so like, <laughs> if you told me it, if you told me at the end of 2021 that the second biggest IP on all of Netflix by viewership was going to be an Adams family IP, I would probably fucking laughed at you looking at the history mm -hmm. of, you know, since looking at the history of that IP and, and how played out it is. But they found something that's different that like hit a, you know, youth audience became mass massively popular on TikTok and it took took off in, in its own way, right? Like it, it found an audience that that got engaged. And I, I that's actually another question I wanted to kind of point at you, which is like how social media is changing mm -hmm. uh, entertainment consumption, especially short form social media. Yeah, like Twitter and Twitter in particular had a and YouTube had a very outsized effect on Game of Thrones, I think, because like oh, if yeah, you sure. were you saw like the conversation that was happening around Thrones. And if you weren't into it, you wanted to get into it because you saw like a hundred people you knew or followed or whatever that you were a fan of their content tweeting about Game of Thrones every single Sunday night. Right. Like that was like that was the thing. And I think that YouTube as well has really played its own part in that for some of the other shows, especially in the comic book world and sure. uh, Star Wars, et cetera, like the reaction videos and you know, now they're memes onto themselves, like the new rock star thumbnails, et cetera. Or, you know, what was he cooking? <laughs> yeah. Did he know? <laughs> you know, people are like, what yeah. did that come from? Oh, yeah. it's like this, you know, channel of like people that break down literally every minute opinion or fact or, you know, like Easter egg ever and make a 10 minute video on the one yeah. little tiny little thing, you know, like, and it's, it's, they had their own little place. And so I think that. But now we're seeing that with TikTok. And I, I think like TikTok is driving people to buy certain things, it's consumer behavior, it's driving people to watch certain things. What are your right. broad broad thoughts on like how how it's affecting entertainment? And like if you had to predict, like where is it going to drive people? Like do, <sighs> well, do you think there are certain genres that stick out or anything? I think the effect is that it's kind of like elevated voices. I mean, you you uh, New Rockstars is a great example of that. It's elevated voices of people who are you know, experts in this kind of like micro field, whether it's comic books, comic book movies, Spider-Man in particular, you know, what, whatever it is, whatever the little kind of like nerd chasm is. And people have always wanted to understand what's going on, to know what people are talking about. And social media provides this kind of like 
micro-targeted dump of information about like what this thing is. You don't know what uh, is yeah. going on in Game of Thrones? Watch this. Here's a little snippet of this. It's gr- it's also it's great advertising, but it's also an ability. It gives people an ability to understand like what the conversation is. Give them context for that conversation. And I think people just crave that. Where do I it's think not it's a new phenomenon? It's not a new phenomenon. Yeah, that's and it's so funny. It's so funny that the Ringer, your former employer, and you became such a big part of that sort of dialogue because, like, Grantland was that at ESPN, frankly, but for sports, like they were, you know, the story inside the story, deeper thought and analysis on the little things. Pick the little things and go, you know, a thousand times deeper on the little things. And it's like, but for for some reason over the past, you know, one reason or another, the past ten years, like the nerd, the nerd culture stuff has gotten that treatment, which is well, like, again, I think very good for it. Sports is a is a is an interesting discursion here because, again, people care about stories, they care about characters. And the way, you know, my, my personal philosophy is the way we engage with, if you're a sports fan, the way you engage with sports is exactly the same way as people who are fans of Game of Thrones or whatever engage with that thing. You know, if you didn't know the backstory of, I don't know, Joe, Bur- Joe Burrow, you know, you didn't, you didn't know him, you didn't know where he went to school, then what would the final score of, you know, of a game mean? Like, it wouldn't mean anything yeah. if you didn't ruminate on who these players are, what they have gone through, what they have uh, achieved to this point, the struggles that they're facing, whether they can, uh, you know, cement their legacy or not. That's the stuff that you care about. And it's the same way we talk about any story, any show, anything. It's just the way that we engage with the world. That's the way our brains are wired to make everything a narrative, a story. Well, yeah. And it's, it's the one thing that like, you know, I've, I've been ripped kind of reminiscing a little bit and like thinking uh, deep deeper thought about like the DeMar Hamlin stuff the past few weeks since his heart attack on the field and the the first uh, or sorry not the first but the Cincy uh, Buffalo game that happened at the beginning of January and thinking about that you know like it's how deep even a story you don't touch very frequently can be right like he was not he was a backup player who got to start this year because he there was another injury on the bills already and he got thrown in there and then has this freak accident and everybody gathers around him and like, you know, all the, the only people that knew the deep lore and the story of his life, which is super fascinating was like the Buffalo bills beat writers. Right. Like, but now everybody knows it because it's just like amplified. It's all these stories. And in a weird way, I think that has some parallels to the deep rich IP around comic books and video games. It's like, there's so much IP that's only the surface has been scratched up. And I think that that's, you know, being able to like go further and deeper into those stories, into those narratives that only, you know, people like yourself who, who, you know, study this stuff religiously, basically know, know every little corner of. Well, I did. Well, it's nice that people uh, believe that I know every little corner of, but I, but it's, you know, it's a lot of, it's a lot of research and listening to other people who really, who really know stuff. You know, when I, when I was working with Mal, when I worked with Rosie, it's always nice to be collaborating with people who I feel like know more than me. It's, it, you know, it's a scary, it's actually a kind of like anxiety filled for me when I'm being like, oh, oh no, do I know the most here? Like then I might mess up. You know what I mean? And just back to sports for a second, you know, thinking about the tragic situation tomorrow and it's great. And it's, um, thank God, like he's well on, on the way to being well. I think that's the, the way we are wired to, to engage with stories is like how, that's how we get in trouble with sports also because you view human beings as characters. Like how many times have we seen, you know, someone get injured on the field and then 
somebody be like, well, you know, the implications for this team going forward in terms of like, uh, you know, the, the roster and the lineup. And it's like, hold on, a person just got hurt. Yeah. And it's it can be hard shut the, for shut yeah. the fuck up yeah. and focus on the person for a second. It, it can know? be like, hard <laughs> for people to disconnect that like that narrative brain, you know, when we should. Yeah, there's a good side and a bad side. The good side yeah. is like when when somebody you know all his entire life story and the quintessential sports story of over like overcoming adversity and like making it right like that before his injury that was his story. And like that's the good side is when people like buy into that. It inspires people. It makes people, you know, go run fundraise the tens of millions of dollars that they have for his charity now, right? It makes people like feel deeply personal and connected because they see some of themselves in someone like Damar Hamlin. And then there's that bad side, exactly what you're talking about. Like, let's get down to the sports analytics of how this <laughs> will affect affect the Buffalo Bills secondary and like what you know, now they're running a third stringer and it's like, all right, just shut the hell up. Like this this yeah. is not it's not the time or the place. That's the bad side for sure. So you were talking a little bit about your, your personal anxieties. I, you know, this, I wanted to have mostly a discussion about video game media sure. and everything else, but I do want to kind of touch on, cause I don't know if I've seen you talk a whole lot about the decision to leave the ringer and go to crooked. And, oh, sure. and I've been keeping up with your show now at crooked. Walk me through that a little bit. It, cause that, that was a big jump. You were such a quintessential a part of, of the ringers sort of, yeah. Geek, geek culture coverage. Well, I think it's like this, it's the same reasons that anybody kind of like works through when they're thinking about leaving a job is is there more opportunity for me elsewhere um and ultimately i came down to the decision as hard as it was that that was the case and thankfully that has panned out but it definitely was like you know i think you look at you might people i don't know i don't know how many people actually give a shit about this but like looking at at you know that decision from the outside, it might seem like, oh yeah, that's yeah, makes a lot of sense, and you just do that, and then let's no, there's no uh, trepidation at all. But it definitely, you you know, there's definitely there were moments where it's like, okay, if this doesn't work out, I guess I'll just like wait tables again, and that'll be fine. Like you know, yeah. it was definitely a, a stressful situation, but I again, I felt like, and I and I'm so proud of all the work I I did at the Ringer, Grantland before it, and could not be more uh, uh, proud of the work Mallory and I did and every time somebody reaches out which is on a regular basis to say I'm listening to binge mode for the third or fourth or fifth time and you know mm -hmm. uh, this bit that you guys did or I never thought about the uh, stories this way and it feels great it feels great that 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 touch people in that way you know it's like everybody I've said this a million times but everybody who is a creator works really hard to create the thing that they are making and whether people respond to it is like completely out of our hands. I've worked tremendously hard on everything I've ever done. And I feel really, really lucky that that resonated with people and that they reach out about it. So that, that feels great. You know, I felt a little bit of this, my final year at ESPN Esports before they decided to, uh, and you've been there too, so you know what this feels like, but I felt very, very conflicted. I had decided to leave in, at the end of 2020 when my contract was up unbeknownst to them like trying to figure the way out and then they did me the favor and axed us two months before that decision so rather than break my coworkers' <laughs> heart they just broke everybody's they broke everybody's hearts for for me basically rather than like me telling my you know the co-workers i love peace the fuck out basically and i think that 
the mental hurdle I think I struggled with in the, in making that decision and where I think maybe you can relate is like, I was so synonymous with the work that had been done there. And you know, my like, even now, like I was in an email today and somebody was like, yeah, big fan of all the stuff you did at ESPN. And I was <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, big fan. That was three fucking years ago, basically, you know, like, and it's like, yeah, I'm like, I'm proud of what I've done since, but I, I put in so much effort. And it was so public facing and it was so much of that. And I, and I feel like your work at the ringer was the same. You were like, one, yeah, like I said, a big, big part of what to a certain audience, what that brand was. And, and I, did you struggle with that too? Like being able, it adds another layer to your, your decision-making process. I would imagine being yes, so synonymous. It, I mean, yes and no. I remember at when we were going into the last season of Game of Thrones and obviously Benjamin was up and running. We're doing the after show, you know, streaming on social media, which was doing huge numbers. Someone DM'd me. I think it was something like, hey, are you worried when Game of Thrones is over that your career will be done? In a really, I think they, you know, in a way that felt like they weren't being a dick about it, they were really legitimately asking. And honestly, yeah. like I was, you know, you're, you're, uh, I was a little concerned about it. I've always kind of, I'm not prided myself, but I've, I, I think I've managed to like weaponize my ADD in a way that's uh, conducive mm. to having a career. I, I'm, I'm interested in a lot of things. I'm curious about a lot of things. And I've managed to somehow like make that diversity of interest part of my quote unquote brand. Uh, but for, you know, on the one hand, to answer your question, I was a little concerned that I was too tied to the, to what I was covering at one point. And secondarily, in terms of leaving after that, I think one of the wonderful things about the podcast space is that unlike other creative uh, mediums, like, you know, unlike writing or television, writing for television or, or movies, if you can create an audience and foster a community there and continue to, you know, give voice to your passions and theirs, then if you're lucky and you do it with respect, I think you can move around and take that audience with you. Does it go down a little bit? Does it, who cares? Like, I think you can, you can go and, yeah. and take that audience. And I, and ultimately part of my decision was the feeling like, you know, I think people understand what I'm about in terms of like how I cover things and how I create stuff. And I, and I'm going to trust that they're going to, come and take part in the stuff I'm going to do in the future. So yes and no, that, that that was part of my decision. One of the things you did that when we announced this pod yesterday, I got more than a handful of messages of people because they, they miss this as much as I do, which is NBA desktop, um, <laughs> which is one of the like, yeah, just incredible for those maybe unfamiliar. If you're not like super into sports, Jason hosted this like, I wouldn't call it short form. Uh, what was the usual episode runtime, Jason? It was like eight, 10, seven to 10, ten minutes. Yeah, seven to ten. We tried to keep it as you know under ten, but sometimes we go ten, twelve. Yeah, and so it was the show like running through the news of the NBA, but have and like the funny clips of the NBA, the drama of the NBA, but like it had this like comedic, almost comedic tone to it. It was like you know. I, I guess it replicates what is like kind of a sports art form, but it did it really differently in the way it was animated and presented and everything else is like it does like the best conversations are the ones where you can laugh with your buddies around like, you know, like around a table, you know, like you're eating dinner, you're having like 
you're laughing about sports is like the 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 dead spin uh slash defector trope of like some guys and like you know yeah, yeah. all the all the various yeah. different things right like it hits those fun sports moments and nba t- desktop got extremely popular and, and won some awards as well and jason jason took those home it, do you miss it do you miss it as much as the people that are messaging me about, <laughs> about how great it was <laughs> yeah. when we announced this yesterday yeah i miss doing it uh i miss you know in its successor all caps and uh, i have to shout out my uh, collaborator co-creator jason gallagher who's now doing great things over with uh jj reddick and tommy alter with the old yes. man and three pod and the various incarnations of that one of the most creative and great to collaborate human beings like that I've ever worked with really just like an important person in my uh, creative and professional life. And, and I'm so proud of what we did. I do miss it. And I also feel like, you know, part of you know, I mentioned how many things I'm interested in. I think whether this was conscious or not, I'm just a person who, I don't lose interest in things, so to speak, but when I, but when you feel like you've kind of done all the creative things that you can do without, you know, I don't know, adding something, you know, going to a different medium or whatever, then, then I'm okay with shutting it down. I I thought that we, we had our say, I think we were very influential. Like you can watch any number of ESPN talking head shows now that i i feel like we've had an influence on the visual look of some things you know with the the way they present the screen as a computer screen and whenever you whenever i see that i'm like okay i feel like we had an impact and honestly like isn't that cool like you know we didn't we didn't sell the show we didn't make any money from it we had a great time doing it it made an impact and we were part of the conversation in some form or fashion which i think is all you know on a certain level is just really satisfying. I, I would, Jason and I talk all the time about doing something else, doing it again, doing it a different way. And if it, and I think we will do that at a certain point when it makes sense. Yeah. He's uh, another one of those like people that I really admire from a creative perspective. Never met him, but his work is great. Pay attention yeah. to what he's doing now on Old Man and Three as well. But you mentioned there, like, you know, that creative inspiration. Where do you find creative inspiration? Because you strike me as like, somebody you know from knowing you and knowing your work you you do consume a shit ton of media very clearly and and you have to because it's such a part of your job to be able to commentate on it but it also makes makes me feel like you have to find things separate from what you're consuming for research to find inspiration for new things is is that a fair assumption that you're having to look outside of like what you're normally consuming to find new ideas sure i mean i think uh i'm always reading you know i'm a big fan of history i'm always reading the, you know, scholarly articles, I'm reading books, I'm reading whatever, all of which is to say I'm kind of like always, I guess, researching that it's good and bad in the sense that hopefully it does give some texture to the work I'm doing. Even, you know, if I'm working in the comic book space, talking about comic book movies, hopefully I'm able to bring some kind of like different discursive conversational perspectives um, at the same time, like uh, the downside, what's the downside of that? I always, I, I'm like, I always feel like I'm working. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I, even when I'm like watching Vanderpump rules, I'm like, oh, that was, I, you know, it's hard to turn off like research brain sometimes, which is, yeah. you know, not to, you know, make this a therapy session, but it's, you know, it's a thing that I, that I think about, like, how do I, how do I stop feeling like now I am working? Because the yeah. flip side of that is sometimes I'm like, 
I'll be working, legitimately working, and I'll be like, oh, I'm not being productive right now, but I'm working. Well, hold on, I'm working on something. I'm actually working. Yeah, but like your mind is thinking about this and you, you're thinking about researching this and you're working on this. And so it, it's good and bad. Yeah, it's the, uh, there's a part of you that lives on that's like, watches watch everything like inside baseball. Very Everything yeah. becomes like an analytical watch or an analytical read. And I think it's something that, uh, creators struggle with in particular because you start nitpicking and it's hard to just like enjoy things from an enjoyment perspective, mm -hmm. uh, especially as somebody in your position that has like such a wide array of topics across, you know, sports and also comic book and nerd culture and everything else. It's like, what, what does, what don't those topics touch in 2023, <laughs> right? Like there's everything true. has some connection to some of them and some little capacity. But we are going to take some audience questions here sure. momentarily. Here, here is, yeah, this is the first question. This is from Jan Nil at Jason. Uh, assuming it comes out this year, do you have hope that Microsoft will strike gold with the Fallout show the way that Sony has with TLOU and Nintendo will with the Mario Bros. movie? I think Jerry's still out on the Mario Brothers movie. Yeah. It looks looks exciting, but like, will it narratively live up to the hype? I think you were talking sort of, you know, a little bit about the production of Fallout. Do you think I the question, though, is like, do you do you have hope that they'll actually make it work? Yeah, I, I mean, I know point. of I think the people who are behind it really know how to how to make television. So that gives me hope. And I think that it's it's an incredible it's an incredible IP. It's one of my favorite video games of all time. Favorite video game spaces of all time. I am playing Fallout for now again for the umpteenth time on my on my uh, Steam Deck. Um, and I have a lot of hope for it. I, you know, it's such a fully realized and weird world. I think part of my question is like, how are, what's the tone of it going to be? Because there's definitely, I mean, if you play the game, there's definitely a lot of funny there. It's also, it's a super dark story. Yeah. I'm really excited about it. You know, really, really excited about it. Will, will we see, will we see the soul survivor building settlements? Will we see him uh, or her, you know, installing a water filtration system at Hangman's Alley? I don't know, but I but I'm eager to see how it comes out. And I I can't wait for all the Easter eggs and all the different things. And I just hope we meet Nick Valentine. I hope we meet Nick Valentine in the uh, in the in season one of that of that show. I think for me, I'm excited to see uh, how they integrate factions and if, yeah. uh, how many of them they bring into like a first season as well, because that was of of both of the major Bethesda uh, RPG IPs, like both uh, Elder Scrolls and Fallout. What makes what I love most about them is the faction decision trees more broadly. I've got very fond memories of across both of those series of like, how do I choose like what, you know, and, and the playthrough yeah, so I'm I'm really excited to kind of see how they integrate that because I I think you're right. It's yeah. I guess my worry would be they have so much IP to play with. How do they choose what they're playing with? Basically, it's it's a big big old sandbox. To, it's to gonna it's gonna be a lot of editing. You know, will we will we get to kill uh, Preston Garvey finally and just shut him up in mm -hmm. television form? <laughs> TBD remains to be seen. Uh, this is from James Durs, which is which video game show slash movie would you like to see Quentin Tarantino direct? <laughs> I mean, I'd like to see him. I think the answer is I'd like to see him direct the one that he's interested in in directing. 
you know, he's a person that's got a lot of, you know, huge opinions about movies and things that he's interested in. You know, he does strike me as somebody who, you know, think about the, um, the Fantastic Four references in Reservoir Dogs, right? Like it feels like mm-hmm. if you gave him the right, if you gave him the right comic book property, he'd do it. I don't know, but like, let me just cheat and say like Max Payne. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's not, that's not a bad, a bad one. Yeah, inter- interesting. I, I think uh, he he's such a director that's like hard to place because his, his interests are also so broad, right? Yeah. Like you look at his films, it's not like, He's not a one hit wonder and he's not like a one genre defined kind of person. I think that's when, when I read the, when I was like thinking of the question, I was just like, Oh God, like the, what, what do you put him against? Right. Like, cause he's, he's really hard to nail down. I guess not to, not to, you know, there's, you know, there's so much zombie content, but like left for dead one and two, I, the characters, the mm. co-op, the kind of like comedy gore violence, that is also like was also shocking. I think that's another one that uh, Quentin Tarantino could have fun with, in a kind of very pulpy way. Another one for me. What is uh, what is your most excited sort of comic book IP on the slate? If you had to look at like all the Marvel shows, what's going on at DC right now, which we didn't even touch on. And, oh like, gosh. Re- um, like, what, well, what I guess you most excited about uh, just because it's next. You know, Ant Man and uh, Ant Man mm-hmm. and the Wasp: Quantumania because it feels like this is going to be the real launch for everything that happens in the in the phases that that follow with the you know proper introduction of Kang the Conqueror as the kind of Thanos level big bad for all the movies that happen afterwards you know the way that that character in the comics intersects with Reed Richards of the Fantastic 4 with Doctor Doom with various other people makes the possibility that we could have some you know, Fantastic Four intros or at least Easter eggs, you know, uh, feel really present and possible. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's the one just, you know, in, in part because it's next that, that I'm really looking forward to. And Secret Wars because, you know, on our show, XR Vision, Rosie and I have been so taken with the with just trying to figure out like who is a scroll for those who don't know scroll or the scrolls are the um secret scroll watch yes <laughs> secret scroll watch scrolls are the the uh alien race that can um that can shapeshift and look like anyone any other kind of alien and uh, humans in particular they're kind of built to worm their way into uh you know into behind the scenes and kind of do espionage on an intergalactic scale and so the the question of who right now in the Marvel universe is actually a scroll in disguise uh, is a rich and fun one. I I think I'm just excited to hear people stop like getting their hopes up with the most recent phase of the MCU mm-hmm. too because like oh uh, yeah you know like it's it's a uh, if you compare it to Phase One it's much different right it's like yeah it's the most content ever produced in any one Marvel phase because now we have television shows right you know eight parts one hour long each it like the hours rack up but at the same time it's like it was all meant to be exposition for this like you know build other way they're building up and you're right and man is the way to start putting it to actual sort of bigger storyline narrative actually question on that do you do you think the kang the conqueror we're meeting in ant-man ant-man and, and the wasp quantum mania is that is is that going to be the one that is the ultimate ultimate kang or is he one I of think the, the many others. No, I think that well, I think they're going are going to be many others, but I think that he is 
probably the Kang that is going to be the big bad. He's been trapped in the quantum realm for, you know, an unknown amount of time and he needs Scott Lang's help uh, to get out. That's my guess yeah. on what the, the basic story is. I hope so. I, yeah. I, uh, well, saying the trailer is how he kicks Ant Man's ass. To be honest, <laughs> I think I mean it's gonna be hard to. It's honestly hard for me to understand like how Ant Man can even go toe to toe with him. But that's fine. We'll see. <laughs> well, yeah, but I'm I'm also like I'm hoping this isn't like oh we killed one Kang and now there's like you know it's Hydra. There's a billion fucking other Kangs out there, right? Like it's like no, the, the make this one the one. Make him like have some real stakes, like Thanos did. Kill off, kill off some people. Make him you know ex- extremely fearsome, and then yeah, like. O- open him up like, right basically like make him make him wreak havoc on the rest of the yeah the certainly if he is the kang which we get we're you know i think that's a pretty good guess then he is the kang that killed all the other kangs or is in the pro- or is at least in the process of killing all the other kangs, all the other kangs. by you yeah. know he'll a, a great kang trick which always works is some kang will call a meeting or you know organize a congress of the Kangs <laughs> and be like, hey, let's get together and let's talk about how we can uh, divide up the multiverse. But really, like, they're getting everybody together so they can kill all the other Kangs. <laughs> and it works every time, folks. Yes, yes. I'm I'm very excited uh, in a couple of weeks when, when the movie's out. So, question from our producer, Prame, who is, he he's recovering from some travel, so he wants me to ask for him. Uh, what are your thoughts on Netflix's Resident Evil and did you make it through the entire train wreck of a weird show? I didn't. I didn't. I think that's, I was excited for it, but that I think both of the movies and the Netflix version are a good example of, hey, all this lore doesn't need to be here. We don't need to make it yeah. as weird as the video game. The video game is weird for a specific reason. Um, and it won't translate if you try to do it. It's just too much to keep track of. And I think it, it, it it's a good example of why you don't make an adaptation you don't always like hue for fidelity to the original story when you're adapting something. You're going to have to change some things to make it work for for the different medium. And I felt like they didn't change it enough. Yeah, I have a soft spot for some of the Resident Evil movies sure. the, from from the like early 2000s. They're yeah. like we were talking about Doom being a guilty pre- yeah. pleasure earlier. There's some of those that I'm just like, sure. yeah, but you're right. Like they're just like too deep the the best movies should be yeah the best movies should be and in video game adaptation should be where like exactly what you were saying earlier the main plot line should be able to be explained very quickly you yes be able to get through the main <laughs> plot very quickly now obviously you want to expand around that and like any side plots etc like you know enrich the universe here but like yeah it was, yeah if it was you need to have much. a scene where it's like okay you know somebody's gonna sit down and they're going to open a big book that they found somewhere in the the heart of uh, some ancient fortress. And then they're going to read, you know, eight minutes of flashback. It's too much, folks. Like, <laughs> let's streamline yeah. this. Yeah, 100%. No, and that's actually the last that you talk about flashback over overdone in entertainment. Very well done in The Last of Us uh, in that first first episode at the end. It's uh I was like, yes, good flashback, good flashback. I'm happy about this uh, this use of it. Um, we'll, we'll end on this, though. This is also another audience question from Love Spores, which is, what is your favorite Taika Waititi TV show or movie? And are you okay with the possibility of him doing a live-action version of Akira? I am okay with it. It would probably be 
Thor Ragnarok because from the opening scenes of that movie, I was like knocked out at how different and unexpected mm-hmm. and funny and creative it was. It really like uh, effectively harnessed Chris Hemsworth just kind of like natural comedic ability, such a winning guy. And I think I, you know, I have, I love Thor one. I think Thor, uh, dark world <laughs> is not, is not a, is not necessarily a great movie, but it's an important one. And it's also one that I really like because I'm yep. a f- stupid simp for this stuff, but you know, he was so dour and Shakespearean in those first two and kind of unleashing that comedy side of him was, was really cool. And I just think Taika is like, just one of the most creative people working today. Yeah, I have to give uh, the question was not for me, but I have to give some love to Jojo Rabbit as well. It's uh, yeah, it, yeah, it, it's making such a caricature of such a horrific figure in history and, and Adolf Hitler, and doing it in a way that like you don't feel horrowed when you watch the show or watch the movie. It's like actually well delivery. So that's all for our show. If you enjoyed this episode of Visionaries, you can find more like it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really helps other people find the show. Special thanks to Sammy Daig and Prem Gautamkara for their help with this episode. We will see you on Wednesday. Wednesday.